Well, good morning. <clears throat> so one, of the, um, one of the more memorable times of ministry that, that I've ever gotten to enjoy was when I was working as the first church, both in and like right, at, right after college uh, graduation that I spent about three or four years working in. And it was Memorial Park Church in Pittsburgh. And one of the things that I got to do one year is they, they developed a prison ministry. And so around Christmas time, uh, I was actually able to spend a whole day on a Saturday going into Allegheny County Jail. And I was in the, one of the higher security sections of, of the prison uh, and still kind of gen, gen pop. And so we had worship set up there and we spent a whole day uh, leading inmates in worship and then spending time with them. You know, we brought things like cookies and hot chocolate and all that kind of stuff and just were able to hang around uh, tables where they usually just hang out all day and every day uh, and to be able to be a witness there and to talk to some of those folks and to, to lead some of them to Christ and to just have a time of Christmas worship together. And it was really neat. And so we're, you know, we're staying there. There's probably about 100 or so inmates I kind of gather all around. It was one of those two stories, you know, rooms all around, kind of motel style looking, if you've ever seen a prison gen pop area in the movies. And so we were set up kind of on one end, and they were all, some of them were on a balcony, some of them were in chairs, uh, and they were all worshiping. And one of the cool things is, you know, and, and maybe humbling for us is the worship that came from that room was, was more engaged and louder than the worship of the average Presbyterian church, which made us all feel pretty terrible about ourselves when we were there and, and after we left. But one of the things I noticed as I was leading worship, um, I looked back and everybody was engaged except for one particular gentleman who stood in the back, kind of right in his, leaned in his cell doorway, just scowling. The whole time, he's just scowling. And he looked like, I mean, you're, you're in Allegheny County Jail, so when a guy scowls at you, it's a little different than when a guy in Target scowls at you, you know? You, you kind of wonder what's coming. And so he just looked mad the whole time. And of course, when you know, a time came for worship to be done and we're, we're eating cookies and I sit down at a table with two or three inmates, and of course, who sits down at my table? The scowling guy, right next to me, right here, you know, a little six-seat you know, six table. And he sits right next to me and I'm like, Lord, let me make it out. I don't know what he's in for. Uh, I hope it's tax evasion. You know, but I doubt it's based on where we are right in this moment. And so we're talking, and I noticed that every time, you know, we're having spiritual conversations with, with inmates, and some of them are sharing testimony and life stories, and every time something spiritual kind of came across the table, you just heard this audible kind of like, you know. And so finally, I, I worked up the, whatever little shred of tiny courage that I had within me just to kind of ask, like, you know, like, are you, are you okay? Like, it seems like, it seems like, you know, something on your mind, and and, um, and his phrase, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never forget it. He looked at me, and, and he said, why? You know, look around. And he used colorful words that I'm not going to repeat today. But he said, look around. Everything is S-word. If God doesn't care, why should I? And that, that, that stuck with me. You know, I'll forget about that, that, that time every once in a while, but that phrase stuck with me for, for a long time and keeps coming up over and over and over again. Because do you ever feel like that as a Christian? If you're, if you're entirely honest, right? Like, let's, let's get real for a moment. We, 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 we live our lives as Christians, but sometimes we look around us. Maybe we don't see God moving as much as we think we ought to, or we see the stuff going on in the world, and, and we just have that, that temptation to think that way. Like, why, why am I caring about this? If God doesn't care, why should I? That's a really tempting way of life, isn't it? 
And you would never, most of us, oh, I would never actually live that way. But you think it. Like it comes, it comes, it creeps in every once in a while when the weeks drag on and things get hard and God doesn't seem to be moving in our life. And, and, and really, that begs the question. If God isn't moving in here, well, why should we care? Why should we press on, right? Today we're, we're finishing our series on um, the Minor Prophets called Messengers. And, and it's an apt title because we're looking at the last of them, uh, and his name is Malachi, and we'll look at it a little bit, but Malachi, the, the name actually means messenger. And so of all of the sermon series titles, the title is most appropriate today because it might as well say Malachi's, the minor prophets, right? Because that's what his name is. And a big issue that Malachi was having at the time was that th- this idea of if God doesn't care, why should I, was the prevailing context that he found himself in. His audience, God's people, the Israelites, were extremely cynical as an entire large people group. It wasn't just a handful of bad apples. The whole of God's people collectively were walking within this cynicism and and, and kind of serving God was this drudgery of a thing that they just kind of did to get over with. You could tell that they were phoning it in every step of the way. And so Malachi comes out in this context. I don't know why when I was studying and talking about this this week, instead of Malachi, I keep saying Micah. So if I say Micah, Micah has nothing to do with the sermon today. If I say Micah, hear Malachi, just so we can get on the same page and no one walks out confused. But this big issue was was that there was this lack of blessing, right? God has kept talking about this blessing that is coming. When he pulled them into exile, there will come a day when the blessing comes, when I pull you in. And then they were brought back and there was no blessing. And then we talked about them building the temple under Haggai and, and Zechariah in the last few weeks. And the temple is now done by the time we get to Malachi. But, but the blessing still hasn't come, right? They finished it. They did what they were supposed to. They, they refocused from their own houses on the, the Lord's house. But it seems like no matter what they do, no matter how they move, no matter what obligation that God gives them that they fulfill, this, this blessing is just this kind of elusive thing. And it's almost like they're wondering if it's just this carrot that God keeps dangling ever so much in front of them, but never quite within reach, right? That's what's happening. They're waiting for this blessing, and they had done all the things they're supposed to do, and there seemed, there seemed beyond that to be an even bigger problem, and that seemed that the people that weren't walking with God, that they saw around them, the other cultures, they seemed to be doing far better. And so it's like, well, we're not getting this blessing, this promise that keeps going unfulfilled. It seems like everybody that's, that gives up on this and just goes in a different direction and walks where they want to walk seems to be far more blessed than we are. And so you add to the temptation to give up on the Lord, the temptation to move in the places where there's immediate and instant gratification. Sound familiar? And so that's the context in which we find ourselves. Now, just a few words about Malachi and and his work. Malachi, the name means messenger. There's a debate whether his name was his title. Some people would say that his name wasn't Malachi, but the the title, because it means messenger, that that was his, like, job title. You know, if you go on LinkedIn, it's John and then lawyer, you know. So they think Malachi was just the title. But it's not really consistent. We, we, We think that was his name because every single minor prophet that we see introduces himself kind of in the same way. The opening verse always talks about the name of the prophet. And so Malachi's work follows this pattern. And so it would seem weird that he's the only one who introduces himself, not by his own name. And so we believe that it was actually a guy named Malachi, right? Based on the minor prophet pattern, that's who he was. And he prophesied, we think, we're not exactly sure, 
We don't get the dates like some, but around the 440 to 400 BC time frame. And so roughly, you know, 80-ish, 100 years, depending on how you want to count it, after people like Haggai and Zechariah. They were not at the same time. Malachi is much later in history. And so, you know, Malachi, this, is, this is period was, was when he was covering the prophetical work of what we read about in the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to read the history of what was happening during Malachi, you can go read through Nehemiah and the rebuilding of, of not just, you know, the temple, but then the wall and then the, the city itself. They're, they're kind of in this rebuilding mode and exhausted from it. And he's talking to them long after the temple had been complete and the blessing had still not yet come. And one of the other noteworthy things about Malachi that has little to do with him but more to do with history is that, as we mentioned, Malachi is the last of the prophets. Right? We're finishing that series today because Malachi is the last one. And, and not only is he the last minor prophet, he is the last word of the Old Testament. Right? This isn't obviously news to people, but when we look at our calendars, we have B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domine, which is Latin for year of our Lord. Right? And so the zero, right, we're counting backwards until we get to zero. And the reason we started zero is because the, the event of that year was so significant that it required a restarting of the calendar, essentially. We base everything, secular or, 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 or Christian world, the whole globe bases everything off of when Jesus came. That's year zero. Right? And so we have before Christ. And if you notice and do some math, one of the things you'll notice is that if he's prophesying 400 B.C., and he's the final word before Jesus comes in zero, it's not hard to figure out that for, for about 400 years after Malachi says his last word, there is utter silence. Right? So Malachi gets the last word of the entire Old Testament before Christ the Redeemer comes upon the scene. Well, John the Baptist before him, and we'll get to that. Right? And so his word is not necessarily more important by nature of who he is, but it's the last thing that God speaks to his people before Jesus. And then he's quiet for four centuries. That's enough for every single person alive to have died for generations on. So that when we get to Jesus, no one was alive who remembers any time that God has spoken in any way to anybody. There's no scripture from that time period that people wrote down later. There's nothing when it comes to, to Christianity to, 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 the, to God's people, to the Christian faith, there is nothing attributed that is canonical, that is God's word in any way communicated in all 400 of those years. Can you imagine the despair of the people on the other end of that? Right? But for us today, it should put in our hearts a kind of a, a urgency and an importance when we look at Malachi to understand that if he was the last, there are some things that he says that, that are kind of God's final words to the people before he goes radio silent. We probably ought to pay attention to those things. And so how does this play itself out in Malachi? Well, Malachi writes not so much prophecy in the way that a lot of the other prophets do. Um, he writes straight up what we call oracles. And so pretty much the entirety of the book of Malachi is just God directly speaking. Like Malachi is a mouthpiece, right? All, all scripture is God breathed in the inspired word of God, but not all scripture is the quotation of God himself, right? I mean, it's literally as if Micah just goes, all right, Lord, speak, and he just He's literally just a scribe, right? There's no Micah personality, in, or, sorry, Malachi personality in, inside of Malachi. It's just God speaking and speaking and speaking, right? And so you can almost say this is like, this is the book of the Lord, 
in a way. And, and what he does is, in the book of Malachi, four chapters, he goes through these series of indictments. It's kind of a legal document in a way. And there's six different ways in which the Lord indicts his people at the time and accuses them. Or when they accuse him, kind of puts them in their place, right? And, and we won't go through all six. We're going to look at one and two today in some detail. But here's kind of just a brief thing. The first thing they do is, is God kind of gives them a, a, an indictment of the failure to see his love. And we'll talk about that in some detail, right? The second thing he does is a, a failure of proper worship and offering. We'll look at that one in some detail too. But the other four are this. The, the third one is he talks about a failure of marriages and households. There were, men were leaving their wives to go have other wives that weren't of the Lord and following their religions. And this was kind of accepted as normal in that time. And so God goes, what the heck are you doing here? He's kind of the, the parent that comes into a room that's covered in Sharpie and is like, right? What the heck? Whoever said it's okay to just leave your, your wife for, for 2.0 whenever she's not cutting it anymore? Really? All right, he kind of lays down the law for that. Number four is a failure to see God's justice and righteousness. They groan. Bad stuff keeps happening. Therefore, God can't be real. Or God isn't for us. Or God doesn't want anything to do with, with us. And he squashes that. Number five is a, just a straight-up failure to tithe. He addresses the idea that the temple has now been fallen in disarray. He's like, it's gross, it's cracking, it's not holding up. There's been no upkeep because no one's tithing. No one's giving to the Lord their portion to, to continue to let the church flourish and, and, and kind of go forward. And, and what the heck is up with that, right? And he gives them kind of a hammering on that. We won't go into that because number two kind of touches on it in a little more of a broad sense. And then number six is a failure to see God's purpose, right? To so say, wicked people are more blessed, therefore, what is God doing? God's not up to anything. Kind of say, there is no purpose. We have no reason to follow you. And he squashes that really harshly. So he has these six indictments, and then it ends on a word of hope, which we'll close in as well. But this morning, each indictment of God either accuses them first or in response to a complaint that they levy against him. And so, you know, these could all stand as sermons on their own, but I want to just focus on two of them today, the first and the second. And I think the reason I want to do that is because they really cut to the heart of some of the challenges that we see in God's people then, but, but also today. These are the two things that really hit today as well. And so I'm going to ask us to stand twice today, because there's not that much different reading, but two, two different times. And we'll look at each of these indictments and kind of walk through what the Lord might have for us. So let's stand together as we read from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Jacob, or is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Word of the Lord. Have a seat. What's going on here? So, so God kind of brings the heat a little bit, right? But, but here's what's interesting. These six things are really harsh indictments to a degree, but I want us to note this. He starts the whole thing, like this is an angry book 
from a, from a God who is righteously angry at his people. But the thing he starts with, the first phrase that we utter is, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's how he starts. All right, listen, everybody, sit down. I'm going to let you have it. I got six problems with you. Number one, I have loved you. Right? Which every discipline starts like that. It's almost like God's trying to like initiate a compliment sandwich, right? If you have something negative to say, I always say a nice thing, a bad thing, and a nice thing so the person feels a little, a little better about it. He starts with this idea of love, and we see the people immediately on the defense when they hear that. That's really noteworthy. They have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Right? So God sits him down. He's, he's got this oracle. Hey, I, I, I love you guys. And their response isn't, oh, thank you, Lord. But how have you loved us? What have you done for me lately? Right? They, the, the first response of the people is to, to doubt the love of God. And, and, and so to this doubt, God responds in a way that might seem a little confusing, by retelling the story of Jacob and Esau. If you remember, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau was the older brother, which means he should have had the, the heritage, the inheritance, the, the double portion, the blessing of, of his father, right? But we, we find out that when they're both born, even though Esau was supposed to be the heir and the one who's in, in charge and served by the younger, that, that God, for, for reasons that we don't understand decides to choose Jacob over Esau, right? It's the, it's the prime passage that we use when we talk about big words like predestination or the providence of God. And so his response is, he's like, I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? And his response is to talk about the providence of the Lord. You might go, well, that's a weird way to answer the question. Maybe give us some examples of things you've done for us. He says, listen, no, no, no. Um, have I not... Is it not Esau who's Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And then he talks about the history of Esau's tribe, who were the Edomites, who we talked about a few prophets ago, right? Just getting absolutely decimated. They're this side tribe that exists outside of Israel who never seems to make it because the Lord detests them. He chose Jacob and thereby his offspring, who were all of God's people, the Israelites. He chose them as his people and not the others. And so they are blessed, they are cursed throughout all of Israelite history. And so this, this Jacob-Esau brother kind of pitting them against each other, the, the two of them as a story is an overarching account of really the entirety of Israelite history. It goes, just like I picked Jacob over Esau, so I have chosen Jacob's descendants over Esau's descendants. And if you look through your history, guys, you'll notice that every single time I'm, I have pulled you out, I have kept you, I have guarded you, I have held on to you, I have preserved you, I have blessed you, I have given you land that others held and taken it from them and given it to you because you are my chosen people. How have I loved you? Look at a history book. Has there been any time in history where you haven't been miraculously preserved? Can you think of a couple times where you with an army of a couple hundred went up against tens of thousands? Do you think you won that because you have great muscles and you trained? No. I have preserved them. And look, by the way, every time a non-blessed entity, every time Edom says, I will rise up and rebuild again, he's like, look, I'm just going to tear them down. None of your enemies have hope against you because I have loved you and because I preserve you. Right? And 
so that's his, his first thing here. And, and it's a story of God choosing not based on merit and only on his understanding instead. And so God reminds them of how they were God's chosen people. And by the way, not through any merit of their own, right? That's, that's the key here. What God is saying is, how can you say I don't love you? Can't you see how I've been at work all this time? I've chosen you. I've given you land. I've preserved you. I've carried you this whole time. It's like a parent of a thankless child, right? I've sacrificed for you sleep and comfort and financial well-being. I've laid down my life for you, and I've gotten nothing back, right? You ever felt like that as a parent? Like you just give everything and nothing never comes back to you? Every, every like 45 to 50 days, you get a, a, a I love you or I don't hate you today, <laughs> right? Like that's the reward of, of parenting, that and getting to watch them grow in the Lord, and it's pretty cool, right? But like sometimes it's, if you've ever felt, you know, like a parent who's, who just has a thankless kid, that's kind of what we're in here, right? You don't even see the ways I've been at work for you. And by the way, the only reason that I'm working for you is just out of pure love. Yeah, you haven't done anything to deserve it. Like you can't claim any credit here. You can't say, well, we've earned your love by, by what? Give me something. I'm waiting, right? Have I loved you? All I've done since the inception of time is to love you. You want to know how you know I loved you? Because I created you when I didn't have to. I didn't need you. I didn't need anything. I made animals and birds and fish of the sea and, and, and birds of the air and, and, and dry land and, and sea and, and sun and, and stars and moon. And I made all these things and the creation was pretty perfect. I didn't have to put you in it. You realize I, just, I created you entirely out of an overabundant pouring out of my love and affection and holiness and goodness. Like you're a product of, of me being so loving and so good that I couldn't help but just to keep creating. I wanted to show off my glory. So I made you. I'm starting to regret it. No. <laughs> right? That's, that's what he's trying to say here. All I've done is preserve you this whole time. And so God here says to them, how can you say that I haven't loved you? And so God confronts one of the worst aspects of his people and also one of the worst aspects of his people today. The, they doubt the love of God. And we doubt the love of God. How many of you doubt God's love in your life? Do you know that is absolutely unequivocally the work of the enemy? Every single time that you doubt God's love for you as a follower of his. You know, that's always complete BS every time. It's never warranted. You've never once doubted the love of God in a way that he would be like, yeah, I would doubt it too right now. That's never, that's never happened in the history of humankind. When you doubt the love of God, it is the enemy of work. One of the tactics that Satan loves to use most is to invoke doubt in our minds about the love that God has for us as his people. He absolutely loves to make us question God's love. It's one of his primary ways of working against the Lord. And what's so important to understand here is that the question is entirely self-centered. Satan gets us to question ourselves are we good enough? Are we worthy enough? Are we obedient enough? And when we do that, the next thing we start to say is, well, could God, could God love me in the midst of that lack of obedience? 
I know I could do more for the Lord, and I know I'm not. Could God, is, is it possible that God might love me a little less because of that? See, the, the, the idea of questioning God's love always starts with questioning of ourselves. It's an entirely self-centered question, right? Is God mad at me? And does that diminish the love that he has? Because in human life, that's how it works, right? None of us love perfectly. The best we generally do is with our spouse or our kids, right? We can love them with some level of uncondition, but no one here has ever loved another human truly unconditionally. There is a threshold, at which point you're like, I'm out, right? I don't care how much you love your children. There is something, there is something they could do that would have you go, I'm out. Something, right? And you just pray that it never gets there it would have to be something crazy, but it does exist. None of our loves are unconditional. The Lord's love is unconditional, and so Satan gets us to question that. He gets us to wonder if God's love is somehow based off of our successes and our failures, and that's the biggest lie because it's exactly contrary to what the gospel says. The gospel says, yeah, you are a failure. You're not worthy of love. You've never been worthy of love. Nothing you ever do is worthy of God's love. Nothing you could ever do is worthy of God's love. He loves you not because of you, but because of him. Just look at Jacob and Esau. I picked Jacob. He didn't deserve to be picked. He wasn't special. He wasn't the smarter, the prettier, the stronger, the better, the wiser, the more holy. There's nothing about him. As a matter of fact, he was kind of a deceptive little weasel. Right? Esau might have been a bit of a meathead and kind of gruff around the edges, but between the two of them, if you're going to ask me who was more faithful, God picks the less faithful guy just because he wants to love him. The Lord loves you. He says, I loved Jacob and I love you, not because of you, but despite of you. My love comes from my own self, not by something you've done. You can't earn it. And that means if you can't earn it, you also can't unearn it. See, I get the feeling that some of you really need to hear this today. This is a, a truth that is beautiful and glorious, but really hard. God loves you, and it doesn't matter what you think you've done to screw it up. It doesn't matter if he seems distant or not at work right now. God loves you with a depth and a breadth and a passion and a fervor that you can't even imagine right now. If you have a child and you love that child, it pales in comparison to the love that God has for you. It's not even close. Right? Many of us are so used to being guided by our feelings in our life rather than our faith that we can't even trust that. And so God's first indictment is, you, you forget that I love you. Anytime something goes remotely wrong, the first thing you do is just question my love and my motivation. You just go, ah, he couldn't love me because something happened that shouldn't have happened. Right? What, what have I done over the course of years of preservation to have you question my love? And so, yeah, it's a harsh indictment, but it's a, a caring one. And in the indictments to come, God's going to take some serious issues with the way that the people are thinking and living and acting. But I really, it's important that we start with this because anything God accuses them of forgetting is based under the undergirding that he loves them. So when he yells at them for something, it's not him just being senselessly angry. It's, it's a yelling out of love. Only parents can understand that phrase, yelling out of love. So you need to understand that. If you, if you go home and you read all of Malachi and you see all the things that he accuses them of 
The very basis of all of it is love. All of the remaining accusations under the umbrella of and motivated by this love that God has for them. He wants to see them come more and more under his love. So let's now look at standing together, the second indictment. This is the rest of Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For them, the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Again, the word of the Lord. Have a seat. What the heck is going on here? From what it seems, the the people are fulfilling the sacrificial system. They're doing what they need to do. They're not actually coming up short. They are are going through the the sacrificial rituals. We we are in a world pre-Jesus, and so they operate under the the sacrificial system where they they offer animals and things to sacrifice and atone for their sins to the, the priest offers them on their behalf. They come to the temple. And so this is still happening and still the normative practice and still what God wants from them. And they're, they're doing it and God gets really angry. And the question is why? And the answer is just in the, the demeanor and the method and the way in which they are going about the sacrificial system. He's saying, look, you guys are, are bringing me like lame animals and blind animals and leftover stuff. What they, what they were doing is they were sacrificing, you know, all right, I got to bring my ram this week. But they would go, all right, what's the gimpiest, skinniest, scrawniest, most useless one that I got? That one. Come here. You're, you're my sacrifice. And they were offering him the least of the least. Right? They were kind of doing the bare duty that they needed to do. I once, I remember as a youth pastor, I once had an argument, this is the first church after college that I worked in, where there was a gentleman who, uh, a wealthy gentleman in the church, very wealthy gentleman in the church, um, who, who came and he wanted to donate his old couches to the youth room. And, and like he pulled up, he showed me pictures of them on his phone, you know, 
back before we had iPhones, so it was like a... But even in the pixelated little pre-iPhone photos, I could look at them and go, like, there, there's holes in these things. They were raggedy. I'm pretty sure something was living in them, you know. And, and it became pretty apparent. I said, oh, like, you know, are you, are you replacing? He's like, yeah, I'm putting in a theater. I'm getting the comfy theater seats, you know. And, and he was talking about all that. And, and it became pretty apparent, like, you're not looking to serve the youth ministry here. You're looking to, to, to guilt pawn off your old stuff so you can feel less guilty about buying, buying the the new stuff. And so I said, you know, those chairs that you're looking to buy, those would look really cool in the youth room. <laughs> and he just kind of scowled at me and, and moved on. I said, no, like, one of, the, one of the policies, and I have this policy here, like, old couches breed old couches. Like, you know, a lot of people just think, well, I will donate the thing I least want. Right? So in some ways, we, we do this today with our lives, but at the time, they were sacrificing the least amount they absolutely had to. And so what God is saying is, like, your sacrifice isn't actually accomplishing the purpose for which I have designated it. You're supposed to be sacrificing. Like, that means you lose or give up something that you really value, right? And so when we look back at the initiation of the the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament, one of the things we see is the Lord demands the choice ram, the first fruits like God wants them to sacrifice off the top end of what they've got when it comes to their animals and their grain and, and their monies and everything. And, and that, that kind of call upon our lives, even though we don't function in the sacrificial system, still exists today. What, what God is saying is, I want the first. He's mad because they're giving him the reject pile leftovers. Instead of giving him the best, they are absolutely phoning it in. I'm not sure if there's a warning more profound to the people of God than this, especially now, because many of us who call ourselves Christians, we're kind of phoning in our Christian life, right? And this definitely deals with giving, but it's not just giving. It's far beyond the idea of our, of our gifts, our tithes and offerings, and far more about the holistic aspect of our Christian life. It's about our time, our thought, and our efforts as well. Too often, we give God what's left. Right? Where is giving in your budget when you make it? Like, where, where is it? Is it first? Or is it, well, okay, here's my income, then I have my fixed expenses. You know, maybe it's mortgage, then tithe. Maybe it's mortgage, then car payment, then tithe. Maybe it's mortgage, then car payment, then groceries, then tithe. A mortgage, car payment, groceries, entertainment, vacation budget, then tie. Like, where, where is it? And I'm not going to ask you out loud, but be honest. Like, think, think about, don't think about how much you give. I don't, I don't care. It's not about the amount. But think about this. Like, where is that in your prioritizing of your budget? When you sit down every year and you try to make a budget, which hopefully most of us do to some extent, formally or informally, right? Like, is it the first, the third, the 16th, the last? Where does it fall? For many of us, it's probably lower than we want it to be in terms of priority. Again, not in terms of amount. This isn't a giving sermon. Right? But that's what God is saying about them when it comes to the sacrifice. I am the last thought you have. Right? Let me ask it this way. Let's forget about money for a second. What has to happen in your life for you to not come here on Sunday morning? How easy is it for you to choose not to come here? Well, I'm here because I'm here. And no matter what happens, I'm here, unless I'm dying. Well, if I have the sniffles, I'm not going to come. But it's out of respect for other people, not because I want to stay home. Right? Or, and I'm not saying that's even bad. Maybe, you know, if you're sick, you should stay home. 
But maybe it's, yeah, I just, you know, my kid has a sports game this week, so I'm not going to come because of that. Or I have family in town, and we were up late last night, and I'm just tired, and they're all in my house. And, like, every one of us has a threshold, and it's somewhere. It's somewhere between if I wake up and my knee is creaky, I ain't coming. And unless I'm bleeding out, I'm here. Like, we're all somewhere in that, and you know where you are. I know where I am. Well, I know where I am because I have to be here, right? <laughs> if I ever didn't show up. One of these days, you're going to come here, and I'll just be like, ah, I just didn't feel like it today. We'll see how that goes and how long session puts up with me. Not very long, I bet, right? But that's, that's kind of the, the, the way that God is addressing the people here. He said, look, you, you give me what's left. You give me what is left. What are the things that you would buy or acquire or make sure are in place and safe before you give to me? And this isn't meant as a guilt trip. It's so far from it. God talks about wallets for a reason, a lot. They are a barometer of where your heart is, right? It's not about the money. It's not about the specific time. It's not about me making you feel guilty for whether you come here or not, or volunteer or not, or attend a Bible study or not. We, we, we talk about these things because they are the barometers of where your heart is. If your priority is to, to, to engage with the things of the Lord with your time, talent, and treasure before other things in life, then that's a barometer of how much your heart belongs to the Lord. It's uncomfortable to think about things like time, talent, and treasure, but they are an indicator, a really good one, of where your heart lies. And so that's what God is saying to them. How easy would it be for us to drop the Lord in favor of other things? We live our life and we allocate some of our time so long as it doesn't make life hard that week, right? And we do this with every aspect of our lives, not even just our time, talent, and treasure, but maybe our social capital, our reputations, right? Where is God on the list of the priorities of the various ways in which you live life? Is he the first? Because if he's anything but number one, something's not right. And that may be hard to hear, but that's the truth. God wants to be number one in every area. We all, in some ways, fall guilty of this indictment. This is one that just hits, just punches us right in the gut. And we live this life and we allocate some of our time, but not all of it. And God wants us to give it all. And anyone who doesn't, he calls a cheat in, in, in Malachi chapter 1. God wants to have your first. God wants to be a priority. Imagine if you treated any other relationship in your life the way that you treat the Lord. Imagine if you did that to your marriage. You only talk to your spouse after all your other priorities are met. Some of you haven't talked to God in like six months. And listening to a corporate prayer in church doesn't count. Right? What if, what if, what if it was your spouse? What if you've gone six months and you talk and they're like, why, why, why are we communicating? Well, I've just been busy, you know. Other stuff. Marriage lasts? I don't think so. Right? That's what God is trying to say. Imagine if he only bought your spouse a Christmas gift after you have bought everything for yourself that you ever wanted or needed. Well, sorry, honey, I couldn't. I just, you know, I needed, I wanted a new car. So you got, you got a kiss on the cheek. It's not going to go very well. Right? You don't got to buy your wife a Lexus, but you got to buy her something. It's not about the gift, it's about what it says, right? 
And so we, we don't function this way with any of our other relationships. If we neglect other relationships in life the way we tend to neglect the Lord in our relationships, it doesn't end well. But somehow we expect that with him it's a different result. And God is saying, stop phoning in the Christian life. I want to be the center of your heart. I want to be the most important thing. And I want your focus to be on me before it's on anything else. And by the way, the reason I want that for you and from you is because I want me to be the one that informs all the other things that your focus is on. I want you to start with me first and get that straight because if you do that, the other ways in which your life is lived are affected and informed by me. And, and guess what? It's going to go better for you. Right? It starts with him. I want your life to be centered on me and I want that to be what all other things flow from. I want you to give me the time first when you, when you rise in the morning and when you sleep at night so that when you go to work, you have me on your mind and, and I and the wisdom that I impart in you and the spirit that I give you informs the way you do your work and informs the way you feel about your work and how you feel when you're at work. It's not based on what comes into your office that day, but it's based on who you are in me and what I've called you to do and carry out in this place, in this day, at this time. Can you imagine how God is a priority in our hearts and minds with our time, talent, and treasure which shape the rest of life? I'm in a feud with my spouse right now. He's driving me crazy. She's driving me crazy. Well, if God is the center in the first place that you think to go, then you are informed by him and you say, this is a thing that's bigger than you. I am the one who fulfills your needs. Your spouse doesn't fulfill your needs. I do. You are, just, you are called to live out life with them. And by the way, when it's hard, I'm with you. You think that inform and improve the relationships that you have with your spouse, with your kids, with your families? When you sit around the table at Thanksgiving in just a few short days and people are driving you batty because there's always one, right? If your priority is to be centered on the Lord, the question becomes, how can I live the gospel into that person who I would rather just didn't come? Right? God, there's a reason you have them here. What is it? When God is first, everything else gets better. And so he indicts them. He says, look, you're phoning it in. And I'm tired of not being your absolute priority. The only thing that I will have is your absolute primary attention. Nothing else is going to be enough. Our God is a jealous God. He's the only one who gets to do that in a way that's righteous and not self-serving. The way it would be if we were jealous. And so how are we doing with that? My encouragement would be that we all go home and spend some time in the days and weeks ahead in prayer. Thanksgiving is such a good time for this. Give thanks to the Lord and come back to the Lord if he hasn't been your priority. Right? Ask for forgiveness and repent of not offering your full self to him in every way that you can imagine. Right? God is not interested in your lip service. If that's what you're willing to offer him, you might as well stay home. He's not interested in it. It might be hard to hear, but it's the truth. And the Israelites were groaning about where the blessings were, and God is telling them, you keep asking for blessings, but you won't live the life that brings them. And God is telling us the same thing today. Right? Malachi ends with chapter 4 with this blunt and glorious promise of Christ to come. The whole chapter is kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus coming. And in vivid detail, it's not just talking about Christ, but it actually talks about, like, the next thing you're going to hear is, is the messenger who will announce 
the coming of Christ. And so Malachi actually predicts John the Baptist's arrival when we get to the Gospels and start reading as John comes out of the, the wilderness and proclaims that the Lord is coming, right? And tells people to get ready and starts baptizing them in the name of Christ. And so he ends the whole Old Testament with a prophecy of a promise of one coming who will be the son of righteousness, he says in, in chapter 4. He even tells them of all of the depths and details of how he's going to come and how that's going to work. And after that, it goes silent. And 400 years goes by with nothing. And as we look into our Advent series in the weeks ahead, we've got a random week next week, and then, then we start Advent. We're going to start to look at this 400-year period a little bit. We'll get into some more depths and details about what's going on during this time to get us from Malachi and the people who are in despair to the, to, to the Christ's coming and changing everything. But for today, let this be your challenge. Are you phoning it in? If you are, how can you move in a way that allows that not to happen? Not so that you can have God's love be more abundant in your life, because it's there. You don't need to earn God's love, but as a response to his love. That's why he starts with love and then starts with give me your all. You don't do this to get this. You got this. And so this is, your, this is how you respond to my love. All right, let's pray. God, we, we're a people who just forget how to respond to your love. Lord, we buy the lies of the enemy that make us question. Make us question you. We wonder where you are when life gets hard. We're, we're so easily strayed away from the things that you say are good and right and true. Lord, forgive us. We pray for grace and mercy. And we repent of those things. We repent for the times that we fail to acknowledge and see your love in our life. And we pray that you might be constantly reminding us of how great your love for us is. Pray that you remind us when we wonder if we're worth it, that we're not, but that you love us anyway. We pray that that grace would just, just live and press into our being as we get into this season of Advent of hope and anticipation, Lord, that we would constantly know that you love us more than we could ever imagine. So God, we pray that in response we might offer ourselves to you that our whole bodies might be offered, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, our God. And that that might be our act of worship. That it might not be that we sing in a, in a good or a bad key when we come here on Sunday mornings, but that our whole lives might be an offering in response to the, the greatness of your love and your mercy. Be with us this week. Cement these truths in our hearts and let us live them out. Encourage us, remind us, strengthen us, we pray. And all those people said, Amen.